Hello, my name is Paul Washer, and I'd like to welcome you back to another uh, segment of our series, Looking Unto Jesus. The title is taken, of course, from a work by Isaac Ambrose that if you haven't read, I would suggest with all my heart that you would read it. Um, it's one of those books that uh, it's really good to keep it on your nightstand and um, every night read a portion of the text. It will cause you to see Christ in a new light and I believe to love him more. Today, we're going to be looking at a 17th century uh, preacher, theologian, Puritan by the name of John Flavel. And he is one of my favorite writers in, in all of church history. And um, what he's gonna do in this text is he is, he's lamenting the ineptitude of the inability of even the greatest scholars, the greatest preachers to display Christ as he ought to be displayed. And before we read the text, let me say this is something that I have found very common among the greatest preachers in church history. Um, I've seen it in Flavel. I've seen it in John Owen, and I've seen it several times in Charles Spurgeon, where before they begin to take a text or to talk about Christ, it's, it's as though they give an apology, not an apology with regard to a defense, but almost asking for forgiveness because they know that whatever they say about Christ is not going to be enough. It's not going to be enough. No matter how high our thoughts are about Christ, they're not high enough. And no matter how beautifully we speak of him, it's still not enough. And so let's read Flavel from the 17th century. He says, but let me tell you, the whole world is not a theater large enough to show the glory of Christ upon or unfold the one half of the unsearchable riches that lie hid in him. These things will be far better understood and spoken of in heaven by the noonday divinity in which the immediately illuminated assembly do there preach his praises than by such a stammering tongue and scribbling pen as mine, which doth but mar them. Alas, I write his praises but by moonlight. I cannot praise him so much as by halves. Indeed, no tongue but his own is sufficient to undertake the task. What shall I say of Christ? The excelling glory of that object dazzles all apprehension swallows up all expression. When we have borrowed metaphors from every creature that hath any excellency or lovely property in it, till we have stripped the whole creation bare of all its ornaments and clothed Christ with all that glory, when we have even worn out our tongues in ascribing praises to him, alas, we have done nothing when all is done." In spite of certain failure, I must both write and preach, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Thus being torn between my impotence to expound the gospel and my absolute necessity to do so, I commend this work to Christ's church collectively and to the believer individually. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you. Mostly, Father, thank you for Christ and thank you for the scripture that is the only 
inerrant and infallible record we have of him. But also, Lord, thank you for the work of grace you have done in so many men and women down through history. Lord, help us to light our fires in theirs. Help us, Lord, to understand their passion. Lord, to cultivate it in our own hearts. And Lord, help us now just to meditate upon the words of your servant, John Flavel. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm just going to pass through and look at some of the phrases and maybe give some explanation. He says, but let me tell you, the whole world is not theater large enough to show the glory of Christ upon or unfold the one half of the unsearchable riches that lie hid in him. If a man were to live a hundred years and de devote all his thinking years to nothing but meditations of Christ, it would be a worthy thing to do. If a man determined to speak only of Christ and his glory with every word, it would be a worthy thing for him to do. Now, I want, I want to take that and I want to apply it to the pulpit. I know that in Scripture there, there are laws, commands, principles of wisdom, directives of all sorts, and they need to be preached. But the purpose of the Bible is not to give us a, a self-help methodology. The purpose of Scripture is to reveal Christ and how much time is wasted in the pulpit when Christ is not preeminent. When I see a preacher or hear a preacher who does not have Christ at the center, who, who does not proclaim him as preeminent, who does not speak much of Christ, I know that he knows little of Christ because those who truly know him must proclaim him. And even when we proclaim principles and we proclaim commands, it is all flowing from our love for Christ and our desire that he be glorified in our every activity. Let's go on. He talks about the glories of Christ, the unsearchable riches that are hid in Christ. And he says these things will be far better understood and spoken of in heaven by noonday divinity. Now, you need to hold on to that because he's going to he's going to say something that's related to that later on in this passage. But what he's trying to tell us is, is that the glories of Christ are better understood by those who have already gone on to heaven. Because you know that even the Apostle Paul says that we see darkly, we see as though in a mirror and we don't see as clearly as we ought. Now, here's something that I want you to understand, even the Apostle Paul um, admitted his limitations and that he would see far greater, far more of Christ in heaven. Yet we shouldn't allow that to limit us or cause us to be passive or apathetic. But we should spend our life, especially as ministers of Christ, our primary job is to mine the jewels of Christ that are found in Scripture alone and then to bring those jewels, to bring those dazzling diamonds before God's people. If you want to motivate God's people, there's something that will motivate them far more than wrath, far more than judgment, far more than fear, and far more 
than the ease and peace and glory of an abode called heaven. You want to motivate the people of God? Tell them about Christ. Tell them about Christ. And if they're truly converted, that will be their primary motivation to fulfill their chief ambition, which is to be pleasing to Christ, whether here in this world or before his throne in glory. Now, he says. These things will be far better understood and spoken of in heaven than by such a stammering tongue and scribbling pen is mine, which doth but mar them. Now, I think this is this is the the struggle of the minister. We could call it we could say this is the minister's bane. Our task in preaching Christ and writing about Christ in one sense will always end in failure. Now, what do I mean? When we leave the pulpit, if we have faithfully expounded the text, we should have a joy and a confidence, yet we should also have a deep humility. That no tongue, whether of a, a Spurgeon or an archangel, no tongue could ever proclaim Christ as he ought to be proclaimed. And in some ways, our best speech is simply a shadow in a cave. Our best speech, in some ways we could say, mars the glory that is truly the glory that belongs to Christ. I've heard some theologians, uh, some Puritans uh, even use the word disfigure. Um, we should be humble when we go into the pulpit. We should be prepared, but we should go into the pulpit with fear and reverence, knowing that we've been called to do something that is beyond us. This should also lead us to more diligent study. This should also lead us to more diligent prayer, crying out that the Holy Spirit would help us do what is impossible for any man to do. No one can speak of God fully and completely, except God himself. And we need God's help in the pulpit. Now, he says this. Remember, he talks about those in heaven. Um, they know Christ by noonday. That means they know Christ as someone who is reading a book or looking at an object in the light of the midday sun. But he says this about himself. Alas, I write his praises, but by moonlight. You know, over the years, and I am, I am not a, a great scholar, nor do I have, by any measure of the term, a great intellect. But just in my extremely limited vision, I have seen things in Scripture about Christ that literally um, set my heart aflame. That... Um, it was almost as though you would want to say, Lord, take this sight from me. I can bear it no more. The beauty, the, the wonder of who Christ is and what Christ has done on Calvary. Yet, yet even the most beautiful things we see, we are seeing as those who look by moonlight. That should encourage us because what is awaiting me? I was one time very young. I'm about to turn 60. In a few days, I will be 80. That's how fast life passes us by. But for the minister of God's word, 
we know that the best is yet to come, that whatever we've seen of him is by moonlight. And one day we will stand there in his presence, bearing his righteousness because of his work, and we shall see him as he is. He says, alas, I write his praises by moonlight. I cannot praise him so much as by halves. I can't give him the praise that he deserves, but I can keep studying the scriptures. I can keep searching out Christ. I can keep praying for illumination and power. And I can keep hoping that in sanctification, my personal sanctification, also my praise will be sanctified. We go on. He says, no tongue but his own is sufficient to undertake that task. You know, I was studying on the three hours of Christ on the cross uh, a few years ago. And Spurgeon made a remark about how Christ is shut up in a room alone to the wrath of God, that darkness has fallen, that no one can see him. He can see no one. He is shut up completely isolated as billow after billow of the wrath of God pours down on his head. And he makes the remark that no one, not the saints in heaven, not even the greatest of the principalities and powers and mights and dominions, no one will ever be able to fully comprehend what Christ suffered those three hours on Calvary except for God himself. And no one but God can speak of it. He says, what shall I say? The excelling glory of that object dazzles all apprehension, swallows up all expression. It's like you've studied, you've poured yourself out in the night watch, you've prayed, you've asked God to show you and then to help you proclaim. You go up in the pulpit and you preach until you're utterly exhausted and yet you come down knowing that a tenth part has not been told. That it doesn't matter what expression you find, it's not good enough for Christ. It says, when we have borrowed metaphors from every creature that has any excellency or lovely property in it, till we have stripped the whole creation bare of all its ornaments and clothed Christ with all that glory, when we have even worn out our tongues in ascribing praises to him, alas, we've done nothing when all is done. Now, this comes from the meditorial glories of Christ, Flavel's first volume. And in that, he also says something like this. He says, um, you know, all oh, bright flowers and bright moon and bright sun, but brighter Christ. And then he goes back and he says, no, I've wronged him in saying that. That flowers are not beautiful compared to Christ. That the sun is not bright. The moon has nothing but shadow compared to Christ. You can take metaphors. You can take illustrations from everything in this world that has a magnificence to it. And it's nothing it can't be put on Christ because Christ is more magnificent than anything you can see. Any word you use to describe him is in reality an impotent word. He goes in. Now, this is important for us because we don't want to ever be discouraged. It shouldn't be discouraging that we fail every time in our proclamation. It shouldn't be discouraging when we know that the topic, the theme of our proclamation is the infinitely wonderful, beautiful, matchless Christ. So he says this, and you ministers need to listen. 
in spite of certain failure, in spite of it, I must both write and speak for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. First Corinthians 916. So what is he saying? Yes. I will fail to a degree. Yes, my preaching will be inadequate, but woe to me. If I do not preach, we must preach. As we see in 2 Corinthians 8, as with regard to Titus, an earnestness from God has been put within us. We must preach. But we also hold these truths to be self-evident that when we've studied all we can study and we have proclaimed and admonished and illustrated with every word we can find, it's not been enough to describe the glory of Christ. And this is what he says, and this is the minister's struggle. He says, thus being torn between my impotence to expound the gospel and my absolute necessity to do so, I commend this work to Christ's church. He's talking about the book he has written on the gospel. And and so this should be in all of us. Let me read it again. Thus being torn between my impotence to expound the gospel and my absolute necessity to do so, I commend this work to Christ's church. If you have been called to preach, that calling is irrevocable. And no, we don't possess the mind of a a John Owen. We don't possess the eloquence, the clarity and the insight of a Charles Spurgeon. But that's in God's hands. You and I have been called to use the gifts that have been given to us to fan into a flame what's been given to us and to preach. And you can say, well, I preached Sunday. There seemed to be so little in it. I'm going to leave off preaching. I'm sorry, that option's not been left to you. Do you know what you have to do? Climb back in your study on Monday morning and by faith begin again. Never forget, our subject is too great for us. But in our weakness, in our weakness, God can and does get glory for himself. So I hope this has been helpful to you. This is from John Flavel, 17th century. It's in his works, the works of John Flavel, uh, volume one, introduction, Roman numeral 18 if you're looking for the precise place to find it. And now I I hope you understand why it is very good to read old books. God bless you.